I invite you to open up in your copy of God's Word to the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 is where we will be today. The title of the message is Evident Salvation, Chosen and Changed. Evident Salvation, Chosen and Changed. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunities that you give us to study your word. Father, your word is such an incredible gift to us. Uh, Lord, it reveals to us who you are. And Father, there's nothing greater in all of life than to know you, the God of this universe who has created us and who has loved us enough to save us from our sin. Uh, Father, uh, we just we praise you. And so, Lord, we come to your word. Help us to come with reverence. Help us to come with expectation to learn and to grow. Uh, Father, would you, uh, would you teach us through the power of your Holy Spirit, through your Holy Word, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Several years ago, I knew a guy who decided that he wanted to be a Marine. And so after graduation, he, uh, he headed off to Paris Island for his basic training. Thirteen weeks later, he showed back up. Now, there was a group of us standing there talking when this guy walked up after 13 weeks of being gone. And we looked at him, and he said, uh, he said hey, and we, we looked at each other, and then we looked back at him, and we kind of said his name, questioning, and said, is that you? Now, why, why did we wonder? Why were we a little bit confused when we saw him? Well, the reason is that he looked completely different, almost unrecognizable. You see, the last time that we had seen him, this guy had shaggy hair. He dressed like a slob. He had a waist that was larger than his chest. He mumbled when he spoke, and he would not look at you in the eye. Now, now, standing before us was a young man with a fresh haircut. He was dressed in clean clothes. His chest was now larger than his waist. He, he, instead of mumbling, he spoke clearly, and he was looking us right in our eyes when he spoke. It was an obvious change that had taken place in his life. The same is true of those God saves. A visible change takes place in our life. But this gospel change is a different kind of change than this young Marine experienced. His change was rooted in his choice to sign up for the Marines. And it happened, this change happened in his life because he worked hard. He worked hard enough during those 13 weeks to change at least his physical appearance. What we're going to see today is that the change that takes place in our lives as Christians and gives us confidence in our salvation is a little bit different than that. And this gospel change is a different kind of change. His change was rooted in his choice and his work, but gospel change is rooted in God's choice and in God's work or God's effort or God's power, not in our own work, our own effort, our own power. Let me give you a, a summary statement for our, our time together today. We can know God has chosen us by looking at the gospel change in our lives. We can know that God has chosen us 
by looking at the gospel change in our lives. Today we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 through 7. Really, this is a smaller section of a, a larger section which deals with the evident change that takes place in the life of someone who experiences salvation from God. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy are writing to the church of the Thessalonians. And in uh, chapter 1, verse 2, Paul tells them that he is thankful to God for them. And then he then, he then proceeds to give them some reasons why he is thankful to God for them. But this thanksgiving, it, it kind of seems to morph into an explanation by Paul of his confidence in the salvation of these Thessalonians. He is thankful that God has saved them, but he wants them to know why he is so confident that God has saved them. The overarching reason he is confident in their salvation is because their changed lives have given and continue to give evidence that God, through the gospel, has chosen them. So if you will, look in your copy of God's Word, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we'll read verses 4 through 7. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. That's the word of the Lord. I want to give you two main, two main points here today. One from verse 4 and then another one from verses 5 through 7. The first is this. Evidence of salvation is rooted in God's loving choice. Evidence of salvation is rooted in God's loving choice. Verse 4 here is connected with verse 2 and 3 by the word for. Paul and his companions are thankful to God. Verse 2. Let's skip ahead to verse 4. For we know that God has chosen you. We're thankful to God. For we know that God has chosen you. They are thankful that the Thessalonians are a part of God's people. They are thankful that the Thessalonians have received salvation. And then in verses 5 through 10, they give the reasons for the confidence by pointing to the change that has taken place in the lives of the Thessalonians. But before we get into the details of this evidence of the change, we need to begin with understanding the root of the evidence. The root is God's loving choice. The root is God's loving choice, the origin of the Thessalonians' salvation, and thus their changed lives is not their choice to change and belong to God, but God's choice to change them by giving them new life in Christ. The language there in verse 4 is unambiguous. It is crystal clear. Look at it again. For we know, verse 4 says, we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. Well, chosen them for what? Skip on down to, to verse 10, the very end of verse 10. He has chosen them to be, we could say, delivered by Jesus from the wrath that is to come. That's another way of saying to be saved. Christian, the root of your salvation is God's choice to save you through Jesus Christ. God's choice to give you salvation through Jesus. God's electing purposes are clearly taught all throughout the pages of Scripture. From God's choice of Jacob instead of Esau, to his choice of the Israelites rather than the Ishmaelites, 
The Old Testament is filled with examples revealing that God is sovereign over the grace he shows to people. And Jesus used this same language when speaking of his disciples, saying, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And again, Jesus said, I chose you out of the world. The New Testament writers refer to God's people as chosen and elect over and over again throughout the epistles. But I also want you to notice the root behind the root, so to speak. The root behind the root. If salvation and thus the evidence of our salvation is rooted in God's choice to save us, what is God's choice rooted in? I mean, why does he choose to save us? This verse here, verse 4, along with lots of other places in scriptures, gives us this answer. The root behind the root is his love. God's choice to save is rooted in his choice to love. Almost every time we have this language in Scripture of God choosing to save his people or to give salvation to his people, it's, it's always coupled with his love for people. God choosing people is always coupled with his love for people. The two words go hand in hand, the words chosen and loved. We see that here in this verse. Paul calls them loved by God. You can see that in verse 4. They are loved by God and chosen by God. Verse 4, we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Consider also Paul's letter to the Ephesians. He says in chapter 1, verses 4 through 5 of Ephesians, that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Paul, writing to the Colossians, calls them God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Perhaps the clearest place in Scripture where we see the electing purposes of God rooted in God's love is in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. And here God is speaking to the people of Israel right after he delivers them out of slavery in Egypt. Now, as I read these three verses, I want you to notice the inseparable connection between God's choice and God's love. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So why did God save Israel? Because they chose to love and obey God? No, because God loved them and chose them. Why did God tell them this and emphasize this to them? I think to keep them humble and assure that he received all the glory for setting them apart from the nations around them. Why did God save these Thessalonians? Because they chose to to love God and obey him? Well, no, because God loved them and chose them. Why did God save you, Christian? Because you you decided one day that you were just going to love God and start obeying him with your life? No. God's word says that he saved you because he loved you and he chose you. Now, do we make a choice to believe in Jesus? Is that a choice that we have to make? Absolutely. And we're going to talk about our choice to believe in Jesus in just a minute. But here we are talking about the root of salvation. 
Listen, our choice to believe in Jesus, which we will get to in just a moment, is given as evidence of God's choice to save us through Jesus, not the other way around. Our choice to follow Jesus is evidence that God has chosen us. Or to put it another way, the root of your choice to believe in Jesus for salvation is God's choice to give you salvation through Jesus. Why was it and is it important for God to emphasize this point to the Thessalonians and to us as Christians today? I think the same reason that it was important for him to emphasize this to the Israelites. To keep us humble and to ensure that we give him all the glory for the change that we see take place in us, which sets us apart from the world around us. See, throughout the rest of chapter 1, we're going to look at the amazing change that took place in the lives of the Thessalonian believers. And as, I, as we do, my prayer for us is that we will take this opportunity to reflect on the amazing change that has taken place in our lives as believers. But as we celebrate the gospel change in our lives, we must keep at the forefront of our minds the truth that none of this is possible apart from God's choice to save us. And God's choice to save us is based on his choice to love us and not on our worthiness to be loved. As we remember this important doctrine of election, we will find ourselves, I believe, bowing with humility and then lifted high in joyful thanksgiving rather than being puffed up in pride and then having to be brought low by God's sting of rebuke at our arrogance. Now, perhaps you want to ask the question, If God chose me because he loved me, then why does he love me? I think that's a legitimate question to ask. But the Bible doesn't really give an answer to that question. John Stott stated it well when he said, He chose us because he loves us, and he loves us because he loves us. He does not love us because we are lovable, but only because he is love. And with that mystery, we must rest content. Perhaps you're thinking of another question. You say, you're telling me that God loves me, but how has God loved me? Where do I see that? How do I know that God loves me? Friend, in the words of Jesus, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. That's how we know that God loves us by looking at the cross and the sacrifice of Jesus. But once we understand that evidence of salvation is rooted in God's loving choice, we're then ready to examine the evidence itself. Are you ready? We're ready to examine this evidence. So number two, number two, main point for today, second main point, salvation is evident when the gospel produces a supernatural change. Salvation is evident when the gospel produces a supernatural change. So the evidence of salvation is rooted in God's choice. But salvation is evident when the gospel produces a supernatural change. We see this in verses 5 through 7. Now remember earlier I mentioned the young man who had clearly changed by spending 13 weeks at basic training. The change that we experience as Christians is similar in that it is a real change and it is a visible change in our lives. But, as I also said earlier, it's it's not exactly the same. Not only was his change rooted in his choice, whereas our change is rooted in God's choice, which we just looked at in verse 4, but also his change was the result of his hard work 
and his effort, whereas our change, that is gospel change, is impossible apart from divine intervention. This is why I use the word supernatural to describe the change that takes place in our lives. Verse 5 begins with the word because, which lets us know that what follows all the way through verse 10 are the reasons or evidences which are leading Paul to speak with such confidence regarding the salvation of the Thessalonians. Now I want you to see here three evidences of gospel change in verses 5 through 7. Three evidences of gospel change in verses 5 through 7. The first is this. Gospel change must be preceded by the gospel coming to you in power. Gospel change must be preceded by the gospel coming to you in power. We see this in verse 5. This first evidence, it seems a little strange. I don't know if it does to you, but it, it does to me. We would think Paul would comment first on the Thessalonians' belief in the gospel or their change in lifestyle resulting from, the, from their belief in the gospel. Hey, Thessalonians, I know that you're chosen by God because you believe the gospel and it's changed your life. He's going to get there, but that's not where he starts. That's not what verse 5 is saying. Notice the words, our gospel came to you. Our gospel came to you. When we see Paul use the word gospel now, we've we got to understand what he's referring to. As one writer stated, the gospel is the good news of action taken by God to bring salvation to sinful men. I would simply add to that definition through the person and work of Jesus Christ. We want to make sure we highlight the person and work of Jesus Christ in God's action, good news action of bringing salvation to sinful men. But the emphasis in verse 5, though, is on the manner in which the gospel came to the Thessalonians. And there's four descriptions of how the gospel came to them. It came in word, it came in power, it came in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. First, the gospel came to them in word. You see this there in verse 5. No one experiences the change of genuine salvation apart from the message. The words of the gospel. The good news that God saves sinners through the death and resurrection of Jesus is a message and it must be proclaimed. You have to have faith in order to be saved, but it's not just faith in whatever you think of in your mind. It's faith in the person of the gospel, Jesus, who is the Messiah, the Savior, the Lord. And you've got to know that. You've got to know the truth. You've got to hear the truth and believe it. As Paul wrote to the Romans, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. But Paul's focus here in verse 5 is not simply on the fact that the gospel was proclaimed to them. Because you can present the facts of the gospel all day long, but unless the saving power of God accompanies the preaching of the gospel, you might as well be giving a lecture in first century history. So the next three descriptions are what Paul emphasizes here. The gospel came to them not only in word, that was the first description, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Here we have the difference maker when it comes to the gospel message producing gospel change. The message of the gospel must come in power, but not just any power. Paul doesn't mean that he preached in a powerful voice. Paul doesn't mean that he preached with powerful skills and persuasive technique. What Paul means is that the gospel came to them in the power of God. That is the difference maker. This is vital if the words of God, excuse me, words of the gospel are going to produce a gospel change. Paul said to the Romans, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. 
It's the power of God unto salvation. And we see that this divine supernatural power is exactly what Paul has in mind here when he says it came to you in power because he states right after that that the gospel came in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the triune God. He is fully and completely divine. And when he accompanies the coming of the gospel to a people, that gospel comes not only in power to save, but as Paul states, fourthly, with full conviction. You see here, he's not yet speaking of the Thessalonians receiving the gospel, but he's speaking of the manner in which the gospel came to them. The power that produces gospel change lies in the Holy Spirit's ability to provide divine conviction in the coming of the gospel to a people. Now notice the last statement in verse 5. It seems a little out of place to the flow of what Paul is talking about. He says, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. What in the world is he talking about there? This this is a foreshadowing of an issue that he is going to address in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Namely, that a claim has arisen in Thessalonica that Paul and his companions are fakes and cannot be trusted. Paul's going to address that more in chapter 2. But he inserts this reminder here in verse 5 to help the Thessalonians remember the manner in which the gospel came to them. Not by peddlers of God's word, but by the power of God himself using these human men as instruments in his hands. Friends, let me make just two quick points of application for us as messengers of the gospel from verse 5. Number one is this. You will never lead someone to faith in Jesus without proclaiming the truths of the gospel found in scripture. You'll never do it. It is the message of death and resurrection of Jesus for sinners according to the plan of God that is the power of God for salvation. Not your own words of warning to a hardened sinner or your own words of comfort to a broken sinner. It's not really about your words. It is about God's word, the gospel message. We must speak the words of the gospel if if people are going to be saved. If we fail to speak the gospel to people, they're not going to get saved. You've got to hear the gospel message. The second point of application from verse 5 I want you to see is this. Every time you have the privilege of leading someone to receive salvation through Jesus, please remember it wasn't because of you, or excuse me, it wasn't because you came to that person, but because the gospel came to that person. Anytime you have the privilege of leading someone to faith in Christ, which is the greatest privilege in all the world, to lead someone to salvation through Jesus. You just got to remember, I've got to remember, it's not because we came to that person, it's because the gospel came to that person. It wasn't because you proclaimed the gospel eloquently, but because the Holy Spirit accompanied the words of the gospel, infusing it with divine power so that neither you nor I can take any credit for that person's salvation. We are mere vessels made of clay which are easily broken, but the power for change lies in the message that we contain and that we proclaim and in the accompanying power of the Holy Spirit, it's not in ourselves. So we see from verse 5 that gospel change is supernatural, even from the start, as the gospel comes to lost sinners in the power of God. This is the first evidence that the Thessalonians have been chosen by God through his eternal love for them displayed in Christ on the cross. But the gospel can't just come to a person, right? 
that person must receive the gospel in an observable manner. And so the second evidence we see is this gospel change happens when you receive the gospel like other believers. Gospel change happens when you receive the gospel like other believers. We see this in verse six. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Paul now switches from the manner in which the gospel came to the Thessalonians to the manner in which they received the gospel. He says, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. The Christian life is, a, is one of imitation. Now, not the sort of imitation where the imitation is a fake version of the real thing, like imitation bacon bits. I'm pretty sure I, I, my whole life, until I got married, the only kind of bacon bits I ever had on a salad were imitation bacon bits. It wasn't until I married my wife that I realized that you could just crumble up bacon and call it bacon bits. And it tastes a whole lot better than imitation bacon bits. My mom just always bought imitation bacon bits. I think it's because that's what my dad prefers for whatever reason. But we'll leave that there. Paul is not saying that the Thessalonians are fake Christians. This imitation is evidence that the Thessalonians really are a part of God's elect. They really have been saved by the blood of Jesus. They really have a hope of future deliverance from the wrath of God. Paul often defines the Christian life in terms of imitation. And it can be defined this way because the gospel produces an observable change. You can't imitate what you can't see. And so Paul could say things like, watch how I live, and then you live that way, and you will be following the Lord because I'm following the Lord. He said as much in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, where he told the Corinthian church, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. But what exactly were these Thessalonians imitating that gave Paul such confidence to say, we know that God has chosen you? Well, the answer lies in the rest of verse 6. These Thessalonians were imitating the faith of Paul and his companions. They received the word, which means they had believed the gospel message. Friends, it is absolutely true to say that God chooses us for salvation. And it is absolutely true to say that we must choose to believe in the gospel in order to be saved. God's sovereignty over salvation and human responsibility in salvation are not contradictory to one another, but they are both necessities in understanding genuine salvation. We may not be able to explain the intricacies of how it all works, and I would say we never will be able to, under, to understand the intricacies of how it all works, because these are things of God. But we dare not deny the reality that both are presented in Scripture as the singular truth of salvation. Paul is not thanking God that all the citizens of Thessalonica are chosen by God. He is not thanking God that an unidentifiable group of Thessalonians are chosen by God. He is thanking God that those who have received the word, those who have by the power of God chosen to believe this gospel message are chosen by God. Men and women, young men and women, boys and girls, you must receive the gospel in order to be saved from the wrath of God that is to come. You must choose to believe in Jesus Christ alone for salvation in order to know that you are among the chosen of God. But this belief is not just an impersonal agreement with a set of facts. 
It's not. This belief is a deep and personal reliance upon Jesus in, in such a way that my life and hope and joy are so bound up in him that the circumstances of life and persecutions of living in a world opposed to Jesus cannot sway my ultimate surrender to the lordship of Christ. You see, it wasn't merely that the Thessalonians said they believed, which gave Paul and Paul confidence in their salvation. It's that their lives demonstrated their belief by the fact that they received the word, as the text says, in much affliction, in much affliction. In a society where the persecution of Christians is often minimalized to being thought of as weird by those around you, it is sometimes difficult to distinguish between those who merely agree with a set of truth claims about Jesus and those who are believing in Jesus in such a way that their lives are now surrendered to his lordship. Now that may be the case for us in our society, but such was not the case in Thessalonica where both Jews and Greeks were pers- excuse me, Jews and Greeks persecuted those who believed in Jesus for salvation. They persecuted them. Here's the description from Acts chapter 17 of the faith of the believers in Thessalonica. Faith, belief in Jesus in much affliction. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. The text in Acts 17 goes on to say that they took money from Jason and the others before letting them go. Paul and Silvanus were there. They witnessed the belief of these Thessalonians in the face of much affliction. And they witnessed that they were joyful, verse 6 says, as they faced this affliction. This means their faith in Jesus has transformed them from seeking joy in the things of the world to finding joy in Jesus. It meant Jesus was now their treasure, not the absence of physical pain and comfort. Excuse me, discomfort. It meant Jesus and his deliverance from eternal wrath was now their hope, not earthly happiness and worldly acceptance. Listen, the mark of genuine salvation is not the absence of suffering, as some false teachers would have you believe today, who tell you that you can live your best life now and that if you have enough faith, your physical trials and financial woes will evaporate in a sea of health and wealth. No, the mark of genuine salvation is not the absence of suffering, but joy in the midst of increased suffering for the cause of Christ. But I've got to ask this question. How did the Thessalonians have such faith? I mean, where did it come from? What we see here is that it wasn't because of something in them that mustered up the courage to have such faith. The reality is it was because of someone outside of them who awakened such saving faith in them. You see, the same power that accompanied the coming of the gospel in verse 5 birthed within them saving faith to believe the gospel in verse 6. For the joy in the face of affliction was none other than the joy of the Holy Spirit. 
You see, the evidence Paul points to that they belong to God was a supernatural work of God in them, producing a faith that stood firm and was lived out in joy in the midst of much affliction. As Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. That is, you must be born of the Spirit. And when you are, when you are born again, when you are born of the Spirit, your life gives evidence. This faith of the Thessalonians was an observable faith. A faith like that of Paul and Silvanus and Timothy and all the other true believers who had gone before them. A genuine imitation in which they looked like others who were willing to suffer for Jesus. The one who had suffered for them. Friend, if the faith you have is not one that can only be explained by the supernatural work of God drawing your heart to repentance and faith in Jesus, leading you to abandon all to follow Jesus, then be careful in stating with confidence that you belong to God. But this observable, this talk of observable change and imitation leads to the third evidence Paul points to as giving credence to his confident claim that these Thessalonians are chosen by God. The third evidence we see is this. Gospel change results in your life becoming an example to other believers. Gospel change results in your life becoming an example to other believers. We see this in verse 7. Verse 7. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. This word, um, this word example could also be translated pattern. Verse 7 is a continuation of Paul's thinking and reasoning and remembering. The Thessalonians' imitation of Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy in receiving the word of the gospel has led to such a change in their lives that they're, not, they're now setting an example to other believers. They're a pattern for other believers. This word example or pattern is only used by Paul in his New Testament writings to describe the church of the Thessalonians. Paul holds up the Thessalonian church as a pattern to follow, a pattern of joy in Christ in the face of suffering. There's so much more that could be said about this, but just notice the progression here. The gospel came in the power of God to the Thessalonians. They received the gospel by the power of God. And then their lives were changed in such a way that they became an example For others to follow. Paul says, Church of the Thessalonians, that is how I can say with confidence that God has chosen you. So, can I ask you a question? Three questions, actually. Has the gospel come to you in the power of God? Have you received the gospel by the power of God? Has your life been changed in such a way? That other believers can learn from you. Because that change is evident in your life. Salvation is evident when the gospel produces a supernatural change. Now, Paul is not finished. We just stopped at verse 7. Verses 8 through 10 continue with evidence of salvation by expanding upon the deep, observable change the gospel has made in their lives. And it's far-reaching impact on others. But we're going to save those verses for next time. Let me close with a story. It's my story. I was born lost and dead in my sin. 
just like every other person on this planet. I came into this world lost and dead in my sin. And so did you. I, I, I grew up in a, in a home where we read the Bible and, and God was loved and worshipped. And I was taught from a young age the truths of Scripture. I, I, I was involved in church and I went to Sunday school and I, I, I enjoyed learning the, 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 the things of, of the Bible. And I, I knew lots of facts in my mind. I'd heard the gospel lots of times. But one day, when I was eight years old, the gospel came to me in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. I was there at church and I was with uh, a bunch of other children and, and my dad, who was the pastor of that church, he, he explained the gospel to us. The simple and profound truth that Jesus Christ came to save sinners through his death and resurrection. That I was a sinner and that I needed to be saved. I had heard that message lots of times before. But this time it came to me in the power of God. It wasn't that my dad just did this fantastic job of explaining it. I know that he explained it well. But it wasn't because he spoke it powerfully or eloquently. It was that... The Holy Spirit was accompanying His words. And in that moment, I was convicted of the sin that was in my life. And I realized for the first time, even though I, I had memorized verses of the Bible that said that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that no one is righteous, no, not one, for the first time I realized that I was that sinner. But I also realized for the very first time, even though I'd heard it a thousand times, that Jesus died for me. That He died to save me from my sin. That when He was on the cross, He was hanging there. Taking the wrath of His Father, the wrath of God upon Himself. And it was a wrath that I deserved. And I realized that day that I was on my way to experiencing the wrath of God for all of eternity in hell. And I deserved it. Because I had sinned against the Holy God. But I also realized that Jesus took my place. And I didn't have to experience the wrath of God. If I would receive this gospel message, if I would choose to believe in this Jesus. To believe that he had done enough to save me from my sin. And that day I trusted in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. I chose to follow Jesus that day. As the gospel came to me in power. I received that gospel by God's power, awakening faith in me. And since then, there's been an observable change. I'm not perfect, but I can guarantee you that I am not the person today that I would be if God had not transformed my life by His grace through the blood of Jesus Christ. I can say, not with pride, but, but only because of the grace of God that that. God has used and is continuing to use my life as an example to others, just like he uses every believer in Jesus's life as an example to others, as we all follow close to Christ. I just wonder if that has ever happened in your life. Maybe today, maybe today. The gospel is coming to you in power. Not my power. 
for the power of God. Maybe today, He is awakening faith in you. And today, you're going to choose to receive the word of the gospel. Trusting in Jesus alone for salvation. Saying, I know that I'm a sinner and I know I deserve to be punished by God. But I believe that Jesus took my place on the cross. He took my punishment. And I'm trusting in Him and Him alone. Fully trusting in what He did on the cross to rescue me from my sin and to give me everlasting life. And from this day on, my life is going to be an example to others. Not because of who I am, but because what God has done in me. And all of this will be evident. That God has chosen me and chosen you in eternity past. And so we don't take any glory for ourselves. We only say, thank you, God, for saving me. I wonder today if you need to trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. It's the most important decision that you could ever make. Don't let this moment pass without receiving the word of the gospel. Surrendering your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Friend, if you believe in Jesus today for salvation, You will be saved. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank You for this beautiful passage of Scripture. Thank You that You have chosen people for salvation. Lord, we would never come to You. We would never choose to love and obey You if You do not first choose us. We thank You that the Gospel comes to us in power. And we thank You that You awaken faith in us and that that because of Your grace in our lives, we can choose to believe in Jesus for salvation because of Your power at work in us, the power of Your Holy Spirit. Father, You make us an example to others, but we give You the glory for it all. Father, if there's someone today who needs to believe in Jesus for salvation, Father, I pray that they would... They would choose to follow Jesus today. They would choose to believe and rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Father, that you would rescue them. Father, we love you. Oh God, we love you. But we only love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.